0: In Mark chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, it says, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Today we find out that Jesus is not a fan of classical architecture. This is day 16. Welcome to the Journey Through Mark podcast, where every day we set aside space in our lives to experience God's word. Together, we'll discuss the context and meaning of each passage and how the book of Mark can help us understand more about who God is and the story he's writing for each of us every day. Welcome back (laughs) to the Journey Through Mark, day 16, week four, Holy Week. Holy week. Here we are once again with Brendan Lang, who is the author of the commentary for the Journey Through Mark. Hey. And also Melissa Payne, who is our community life pastor for students I'll at take the North Shore. It. Hi. Is that close enough? Sure. <laughs> we are still recording way far away from each other. We are from a distance. I'm recording in my basement and there are lots of weird sounds right now. <laughs> I'm recording in what is like a rear window type-esque space on the back of my house where I'm watching my neighbors build a fire in the middle of the day. (laughs) It's a little confusing. Is that just for fun or are they like burning trash or are they like... No, they're just burning wood. They've got some food and it's a whole thing. Yeah. Listen, there are no rules to this thing anymore. (laughs) We're all doing whatever we want. But we are kicking off Holy Week a little bit differently. Here's my question. What's the most amazing building you've ever seen? What was like something that you walked up to and you're like, wow, what things have you walked up to? It just like blown you away. What
1: I was really impressed by this past year, my wife and I got to go to Rome and go into St. Peter's Basilica. That was a different
0: scale for sure. It's It's just
1: huge. You know, it's big, but then when you get in there and you start like sizing things up, it's just incredible how large and not just how large it is, but just the detail and all the art. And there's a reason why so many thousands of people visit
0: it every single day. Yeah, for sure.
2: One that really stands out to me is actually in Atlanta, Georgia, and it is one of the largest Hindu temples in the United States. And it is white, and it is made out of this beautiful stone. It is just from the outside to the inside to every detail of every, you know, idol in there. Like, it is just pristine. Like, it's wild.
0: The Taj Mahal for me was like Mm. just unbelievable. Like the amount of detail work in it, every inch is just like packed full of detail and different colors. And from the outside, you just look at it and you're like, oh, it's just a big white thing. But it's like so delicate and so ornate, Mm. but like just huge. That's one of the most impressive things that I've seen jesus has some words for some of these big buildings at least the ones that he walked up to and his disciples were impressed with he wasn't really a huge fan or knew that they weren't going to be for very long at least but to take us through that brendan why don't you take us through our commentary for day 16. day 16 the end of the temple mark 13 includes
1: jesus's longest teaching in the book of mark this section is called the olivet discourse because it takes place in the mount of olives which sits across from the temple The primary focus of this teaching is the fate of the temple. Jesus has already symbolically stated that the temple was under God's judgment. Now he communicates verbally, albeit privately and cryptically, that the temple's destruction is near. One key to understanding this confusing and sometimes controversial passage is recognizing that Jesus uses a lot of figurative language. For example, Jesus says in Mark 13, 24, "...the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken." Jesus did not intend for us to interpret this verse literally. This cosmic image is symbolic of socio-political upheaval and had been used by earlier prophets to describe the destruction of ancient Israel's enemies. Another key is recognizing that most of what Jesus predicts here was fulfilled when the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD. Ancient Jewish historical works made it clear that wars, false messiahs, and false prophets who could perform signs and wonders were all characteristic of this period. Jesus himself says in Mark 13 30, not pass away until all these things have happened. This does not mean that this passage does not refer to the end times in any way, but the primary focus of this discussion, as Mark records it, is about the end of the temple. Even though much of what Jesus describes here has already occurred, this passage still has significance for us today. First, the fact that the temple was destroyed as Jesus foretold, affirms that he is who he says he is, and his message is true. He is the son of man who sits enthroned by the Father with great power and glory. Second, God's condemnation of his temple reminds us yet again that God stands against all structures of injustice, no matter how holy their appearance. Third and finally, Jesus' encouragement that the one who stands firm to the end will be saved applies at all times. We may face difficulty when we follow after Jesus, but he promises eternal victory for those who endure.
0: For day 16, we're reading Mark chapter 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, "'Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings! Do you see all these great buildings?' replied Jesus. "'Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down.'" As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, "'Tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled?' Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world, until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or, Look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard, I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree, as soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert, you do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away, he leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned tasks, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch." Melissa, want to take us through our discussion questions for Day 16?
2: First question. In Mark 13, 1, one of Jesus' disciples remarks, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. At this time, the Jerusalem temple was considered by many to be the most beautiful building in the world. But it also became such a point of nationalistic pride that the honor given the building began to surpass the honor given to God. When have you found yourself honoring the gifts or symbols of God more than God Himself? How can you make sure your reverence for holy things doesn't blind you to what God values most? Second question. Throughout this passage, Jesus repeatedly encourages his disciples to be on guard because adversity could come to them at any moment. We may not face the same difficulties as his first disciples, but we too should be ready for whatever may come our way. How have you prepared yourself to endure as a Christ follower through difficult and confusing days?
0: Speaking of difficult and confusing days, Seriously. these last couple weeks are probably some of the most confusing for everybody. I mean, the whole world. Yeah. Literally, we're all like in the same boat, you know? You know, I think about when we were younger in
1: 9-11. You know, I think the feeling we have now is something we kind of experienced then. There are these cataclysmic mm-hmm. defining moments yeah. in our lives. I mean, I don't want to say that it was simply an isolated incident for Americans because it had ramifications for the rest of the world, for sure. But this is larger in scope, really. <laughs> it's interesting. We're all kind of in this together. They're kind of wondering how to navigate this new crisis.
0: So it's kind of funny that we're kicking it off with this passage this week. This feels like some kind of dark stuff. Like they asked Jesus about just a simple question, really. <laughs> and he goes on this, what feels like a tangent just about what a lot of people say are, is the end times or they feel like it's lumped together as one monologue kind of talking about the end of the world. And like legitimately, I've seen people post this passage over the last couple of weeks being like, these are the signs, mm. this is coronavirus oh, wow. and <laughs> this is it. We are living in the end times and this is all what's happening. But Brendan, you said in your commentary, this is not really what it's about. What is this all about? What is Jesus talking about here? So I just want to name that
1: there are a variety of different ways that people read this. Some people do read this primarily as speaking about the end times. Some people read it as a chapter that addresses simply things that happened in the first century world. And some people read it as sort of a mishmash, a collection of the two that has sort of been woven together. And more and more, my understanding of this has leaned towards this idea that Jesus is primarily discussing things that are happening in the first century world. Not that there aren't lessons that... Don't transcend that time period and still have truths for us, principles for us today. But I think he's specifically addressing things that are going on for them. And it starts with this first question. You know, they're hanging out by the temple. Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. They're celebrating what's really probably the biggest temple in the world, one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. And Jesus, he couldn't care less. You know, it's like us going by St. Peter's or the Taj Mahal, one of these buildings, and Jesus has nothing to do with it. And it's even more. More interesting given that the temple is designed to be the house of God. Here is God Himself showing up in the city of Jerusalem, yeah. and He doesn't want the house. He has no use for it. He doesn't like it. Goes in and erects it a little bit. He redecorates. We'll say he redecorates. He redecorates. <laughs> so He goes on to say, These things will be thrown down. Not once one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And sure enough, in 70 AD, this happened. The Romans came in. There is this great Jewish revolt that began in 66 AD, and it culminates with the desolation of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. So that kind of that's the context for us. And then there are a lot of things he says in here that, again, we naturally think of having to do with the end times because they seem to be like cosmic type of events. So for instance, in Mark 13, 24, Jesus says, in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. The, that sounds terrifying. It's terrifying. It sounds like the world is being turned upside down, that God is coming in judgment and destroying everything, not just a temple, but the whole universe. What's important to note here is that
0: this is a quote, actually, from the Old Testament. It's allusion to a couple of different Uh, Old Testament passages. So it's not like he's just prophesying right now. He's like actually pulling in scripture context again. Yeah. And what's key about those passages is recognizing that they had to do with God's
1: judgment that he brought to specific political powers in those days. So especially Isaiah 13, you read that passage. This is Isaiah's message about what God is going to do against the city of Babylon because of the way they acted because of their injustice because of the way they lorded their power over the nations at that time. And if you read Isaiah 13, 10, it says the stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. There's also an allusion here to Isaiah 34, 4, which says all the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. So here we have these passages that again are talking about things happening to the stars in the sky, these cosmic lights sort of being destroyed, being darkened, and there are many other places in the Old Testament where you get this kind of language. And it's important to know that at that time in that place, those were symbolic of what God was doing to specific political powers in 6th, 7th, whatever century BC world. And so when Jesus picks up and uses this language, he's saying this is the same type of stuff that's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem, to this temple. Now, the reason why you use this kind of language is because this is kind of like an earth shattering of Event, especially for those people at that time. This is the place where God dwells. At least that's what they would have believed in the first century.
0: Right. So if they like destroy this thing, they're basically saying God is going to leave your land. Yeah, this is a
1: huge thing. It's not just the destruction of any building. This is destruction of the house of God. And so this is the language that's appropriate. But again, this is symbolic language. I mean, you go back to the sixth, seventh century world, you don't see this happening in Babylon. The stars didn't <laughs> fall from the sky then, and they didn't fall from the sky in the first century. This is symbolic language used to talk about those earth shattering events.
0: Well, I mean, have you ever seen a meteor shower, Brendan? I, that can be pretty scary. Well, and the
1: truth is those things also had importance. Or fireworks go out on 4th of July. Look Ye- at
0: Those are scary. I'm and just kidding. It's not nearly the same scale as what I think most people are picturing for like the end times.
1: Yeah. And I will point out that other types of cosmic things happening, like it's very clear at some places in the Old Testament when a solar eclipse happens and it lines up with events that are happening in world history at that time in biblical history, the Bible picks up on this and those things had importance for people but that's not what this is exactly talking about
0: so like he's referencing a lot of like old testament stuff he's also talking about the destruction of the temple but then he goes on to like basically what a lot of people think is like the second coming or he's coming on the clouds or the day and hour unknown only the father knows like this is all very cryptic feeling stuff like what does this mean so again, like this line, the son of man coming in
1: clouds with great power and glory. What's important to note is this is also Old Testament language. It was used in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Here in Daniel, it says, in my vision at night, I looked there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And so in Daniel 7- what's an ancient of days? What's that? <laughs> Let's just say that's a veiled reference to God. Let's just put it that way. Okay, got it. So this is a passage that talks about how the son of man is coming in clouds to glory to assume his seat next to the Father in glory, assuming his spot as king, ruler of the world. This is his enthronement and his vindication. And I think that's what's going on here in Mark 13 as well. At that time, you won't literally see it. I guess they saw the ascension, but they saw the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, assuming his spot next to the Father. I think that's what he's saying. This is code language saying that at that time, Jesus will be vindicated. He'll assume his spot. Next to the Father, and his words will be proved true. And then in verse 28, we talked about this fig tree that he cursed and withered. He brings up this fig tree again. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree, the fig tree that withered. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. So he's talking about a fig tree again, symbolically, only now he's talking about how the arrival of leaves signals the end of what Jesus is talking about. He goes on and says, Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Well, if these things have to do with the second coming with Jesus coming and once and for all establishing his kingdom on earth, then he's wrong or we've missed it. Right?
0: Right. So and I think he's talking to them about that generation too. So it's not like, yeah, some people, this is not us today, right? It feels like people are trying to take this and put it on their own current era and timeline of I what's think happening. So. I but, think
1: some people read this differently. They might read it as referring to the whole, let's say. Uh, nation, a race, as opposed to a time period. But I think the clear meaning here is a specific time period. And so that's all to say that I think what Jesus is addressing here are things that happen in the first century world. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. This isn't to say that there isn't a second coming, that Jesus isn't coming back. But that doctrine, I think we actually get from other New Testament passages. I think Jesus is talking about something different. I think he's talking about the destruction of the temple. And again, his vindication and his arrival, his enthronement next to the Father
0: in glory. That's what this passage is about. It probably makes the most sense to do that too, just based on what Jesus has said so far. It'd be really weird for him to like change topics completely. It's more of like the same things over and over, which is, this is what it looks like to be the Messiah. This is what it looks like to be God, but also the human King of the world. Mm-hmm. And this is also what it looks like for the established system of injustice to be torn down. This is what it looks like when people who think that they're operating in my name mm. are not. This is what's going to happen to those types of systems. Exactly. Exactly. So that brings us to a lot of teachings in here from Jesus about darkened times, being prepared, having your heart right. He even says, you know, when the owner of the house leaves, there's all these people in charge with their assigned tasks. You leave one at the door to keep watch. What does all this mean for us today? I'm saying specifically today, because today I'm not allowed outside unless I'm going to get groceries. And a lot of people are saying that this is the beginning of the end for just like humans and that we all need to repent and that we all need to change our ways. Otherwise, this is the end of society as we know it. What can we take from this passage to apply to today? And what should we not sort of jump to?
1: Well, I think the first thing we should do is we shouldn't go about predicting the end no matter what. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that this is the end. I mean, a lot of people have gotten in trouble with this throughout honestly the entire history of the church, but you see it all the time where people make billboards and they go on television shows and talk about how what's happening in Russia or China or, I mean, all these different things. They're making these connections between those things and things that are talked about in scripture and predicting this is the end as we see it. And then they're wrong. And then it just delegitimizes the Christian message once again for a generation that's already struggling to embrace it. And so I definitely don't think we should be doing that. What I do think is, again, we look at the fact that this did happen, that Jesus has predicted that the temple would be destroyed came about this affirms that his word is true and that he is who he says he is he is the son of man who sits enthroned next to the father he is the king of the world the second thing I'd point out is the temple had become a system of injustice again it had become a den of robbers literally it had become a den of rebels a hideout for people who thought that they were safe and secure by going and being there it had become a den for priests who had purchased the right to serve God it mm. had become a den for yeah. all these things and Jesus said I have no use for this anymore." And so for our world today, I think we need to look at what systems of injustice, what structures of injustice we have in our world that look holy, but actually have become dens of robbers, dens of rebels, hideouts for people who appear to be doing God's will, but are actually lording their power over others. So for
0: me, this feels like a pretty theologically heavy or delicate passage. Like you have to know a lot about historical context, how to apply that to this passage and what Jesus is saying and keep it all like focused and together. In a lot of ways, it would be easier if he was talking about the end times, right? Then it's like clear. It's like, oh, this is this, this is this. But I don't know that I feel like qualified to talk about this scripture very well. And I feel like that happens to people a lot when they read the scripture. Hmm. Like there is an overwhelming nature to approaching the Bible. I mean, do you guys feel like that ever? Um, All the time. (laughs) Yes,
2: all the time, definitely. Probably the first time I read this, I would have thought that this is, the End of the world language, you know, but understanding more about the temple and how, you know, Jesus would tear down the temple and rebuild it, like it does make sense. But even the title of chapter 13 says, The Destruction of the Temple and Signs of End <laughs> yeah. Times. Like, how yeah. are we yeah. supposed right to there. look at that right. and yeah. not say that these aren't the signs? So I don't know. What do you do with that?
1: So, a couple things I'd point out. First off, all these subtitles, these headings, these are interpretive, these are not part of the inspired scripture. These are not part of the Greek text. This is the NIV. And you see this in all translations. They'll take passages, pericopes, we sometimes call them, and they'll break them up and give headings. And these are just helpful. Just like in all of our daily readings, I give right. some sort of a title that gives a little bit of framework for how to think about what comes next. And Yeah,
2: because it can be confusing when you read that and you think, oh, well, this is God's word and this is the scripture. And it like
1: frames how you're going to read it. For sure. Yep, and I think they're helpful. Like I wouldn't say we shouldn't have these. I mean, I really do think they're beneficial, but I would point out that they're interpretive. I'd also point out that everything that I've just said is interpretive, right? I'm just trying to come alongside and read scripture with all of us and share how I've come to understand it. And I've come to understand this with the help of other great scholars, you know, specifically Mm -hmm. a couple of guys, R.T. France and N.T. Wright have both been really influential in my thinking about Mark 13. And so if you have questions about this, I'd encourage you to go check out some of their work and thoughts on these things.
0: That is one thing to be honest about throughout all of Mark and throughout any Bible reading is as we're interpreting things, there is a nature to humanity that we are reading this through our own lens, through our own understanding. And it is kind of fun to speculate about what did Jesus mean here? What did the disciples mean here? What actually happened? What do you think the setting is? And that's fun, but it's also something that we just need to be honest about. I think a lot of people get in trouble or a lot of fights get started within Christian or religious circles because people believe, hey, this is the way to read this. This is the one way to read this. And if you don't think the same way as I do, then we have a problem and and we're going to fight about it. We'll debate it. Yeah. (laughs) Rather than being honest about the speculation that comes from the fact that, oh, we're not God and we're not the ones that are writing this story. We're the ones that are interpreting it based on what we have to go on. Yeah. And this is one of the most important lessons I learned in Bible college was that inevitably
1: we are going to bring our own baggage to the table whenever we Mm -hmm. read anything. We're always going to read things with our own lenses. It's impossible for us to completely remove our own understanding of things, the things we bring to the table to a text. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to understand what it would have meant to its original authors, how it would have been received by its original readers. And that's why we do the hard work of trying to get into the Old Testament and see how that provides a framework for understanding the New Testament. It's why we look at first century Jewish historians like Josephus, who record all sorts of events that happened there in the first century, because that gives us a framework for understanding understanding things like this. He talks about how false prophets would show up and do signs and wonders. And when you see that in his work, then it makes sense of things we read here in Mark 13. It's why we read Greco-Roman texts and we study the lives of the Roman emperors and inscriptions because all these things help us take off our lenses as best we can and start to see things more and more like they did at that time. We do the best we can. We have to admit that there's always our own baggage we bring to the table. And when we understand that about ourselves, we understand that that's how we read scripture it becomes much easier for us to have healthy conversations with others and begin to see if there's actually things we can learn from others in their own perspectives
0: And I do think that what is helpful for this passage, particularly in all of that, is to just look at the rest of Mark. We can't read this scripture passage in isolation by itself. Look at the rest of what's been happening up until now. Jesus has been speaking about what he believes the Messiah to be, he himself, what he has to do to become that, his mission on earth, and also the systems that he's come to confront. And the systems that he's come to have a commentary about. So that it would make sense that this passage would be a continuation of that conversation rather than jumping to something else. And what I would
1: add there is it's something that continues. This conversation about the destruction of the temple, this conversation about the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father, these are themes that will continue to show up at critical moments in the book of Mark. So, Mark 14, 61, Jesus is confronted by the high priest. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? Are you this king that everybody? Everybody says you are he says i am and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. He says, you're going to see this. And the way you're going to see is you're going to see me enthroned on the cross and you're going to see a destruction of the temple. The other thing I'd point out is these themes, Jesus's enthronement and the destruction of the temple are paired together with his death on the cross in Matthew 15. Matthew 15, 37 says with a loud cry, Jesus breathes his last. Matthew 15, 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then verse 39, and when the centurion, a Roman employee, someone who works for the emperor who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. What he's supposed to profess about the Roman emperor, he professes about Jesus. This is the true son of God. This is the true king of the world. And it coincides again with his death on a cross and the symbolic destruction of the temple through the tearing of the curtain.
0: When you landed there, but that's a lot of the inspiration for our artwork throughout the book and the cover of the book. It's this idea of what Jesus came to do was confront this temple system, this established thing that was probably beautiful, ornate, had a lot of wealth put into it, but he started to tear this down. And that's sort of the visual representation that we use, but it's also we've put people that go to our church in this photo shoot, in this artwork to show that we all have a place in that. We all have a place in Jesus's story. We also have a place in helping to understand what systems of injustice are happening and confronting those together. But we can leave that for when Jesus actually does some of those acts. Here's my question for today, just to leave us. You know, we're all facing some pretty uncertain times right now. There is a confusing aspect of this. We're all in our homes. We're all a little bit in isolation. How do we prepare for difficult and confusing times as Christians? What sets us apart from the rest of the world in a situation like we're in right now?
2: I think even just reading the last part of this passage where it talks about be on guard and be alert, you know, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. We don't know what that day will look like or what that time will look like. But I think that if we're living every day to look more and more like Jesus— We are spending time in his word, in his scripture. We are loving others, serving others well, especially in this difficult time. Then we will be ready for when he comes back. But I think it's when we get caught up in our own lives and kind of what's going on that we forget about giving that time over to the Lord. We forget about putting him first. And then it's easy to get really selfish, I think, in this time. So I would say just continuing to put our eyes on him and know that we have hope in him, that he is in control.
1: Yeah, I'd say it just starts with things like this. It starts with getting into the word every day, making a habit to understand who Jesus is, what are the things he cares about. I know this is trite. I know this is an answer we've said many times, but it's getting to know the heart of God. I think so many of the things we've been reading and learning about throughout the whole book of Mark have prepared us actually to address difficult times like this. This book was written for a group of people, Christians living in Rome, who are facing persecution, who are living under the threat that they might be crucified for following Jesus, who might be killed for following Jesus. And so a lot of the stories have to do with fear and faith and how to choose faith in the midst of fear. And I think for us at times where things can be really scary, and rightfully so, I don't want to minimize the situation we live in. But I also believe that we have a cause for hope. We have hope because of who Jesus is, because of the fact that we know that he's ultimately in control. We know that he's the one who controls disease. We know that he's the one who, even when he dies and gives up his life, he brings new life and we can hang on to that promise that we know that one day he's going going to bring us back to life too. That this isn't the end of the world. That Jesus really is coming back again as other passages in the New Testament affirm time and time again. And it's rooted in the fact that he himself rose from the dead and assured us that we can also rise from the dead too
0: one, just to name it, like yesterday's reading or two days ago, Jesus gives us a prescription on how to live. He's tested actually. People ask him how then should they live? And what are the greatest commandments? And Jesus says, love God Hmm. and love others. Mm -hmm. And that's very straightforward. That's a great way to prepare for anything uncertain. One day at a time, you love God and you love others. And it's kind of funny because I did write these little poetic things at the end of each week, Brendan, that you pointed out. And the one that I wrote for just yesterday or this weekend that we just, past, there's one line that I ended it with. And I wrote this in like December, I think. Yeah. (laughs) So I could not have known like not even just the word choices, but also what we would be dealing with right now. This was just like barely a blip on our radar. I had not even thought about it. I was just writing some meditative thoughts on these passages. And this is the line that I wrote. Even when convention is lost and the prescriptions have enforced an epidemic of fear and waiting, you were made for love. And for me, nothing could be more true for me right now. Yeah, You have one opportunity, it's for remaining in love with God and with people around you. And while it looks differently, because we are all a little bit further away from each other and we're all a little bit cooped up, there is still a way for us to do that. And that's the challenge for today is how are you doing that for the people who matter most in your life? Thanks for joining us for the Journey Through Mark podcast. If this is your first time, we're so glad you checked us out. To check out even more resources, children and family resources, and the eBooks for all ages, visit our journey page at willowjourney.org. And share your journey experience on social media with the hashtag Willow Journey. If you have questions or would like to learn more about the ministries of Willow Creek Community Church, check out willowcreek.org. We'll see you tomorrow.